Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. When we interact with non-believers, do our words and actions give them a reason to believe? You're listening to Reason to Believe, Classic Arguments for God, by Rev. Peter Yonker. We continue our sermon series on apologetics, that's uh, reasons to believe and defending our faith, and today we will talk about some classic arguments, reasons where we still hold on to our faith and why we believe in God. And, and to get to those arguments and to, and to talk about these defenses, I'm going to read two passages. Start with Psalm 96, the first 10 verses. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say, among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And now, from the New Testament, and this is the main passage that I'll be focusing on today, 1 Peter 3, and I will read verses 13 through 18. Peter says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer... For doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, so that keeping a, with a clear conscience, so that those speaking maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you read a book on apologetics, most books on apologetics, or if you go online on YouTube and you look up videos on apologetics or you get a video of apologetics on DVD, these Defense of the Faith videos, what you'll notice is that most of them are aimed at other Christians. So most apologetics is written by Christians, but it's also for Christians. It's to help us deal with our doubts and our uncertainties. 
Now, granted, many of these doubts and uncertainties arrive because of things that people out there say, things we read or, or things we see on TV, but there's still Christians talking to Christians. It's, it's internal affairs. And that's fine. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But I hope you notice as I read it uh, that 1 Peter 3 imagines a different audience. 1 Peter 3 says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for reasons for the hope that is within you. These reasons, this, this sermon series is called Reasons to Believe. And when Peter imagines us giving reasons for the hope that is within us, he's not imagining us talking to other, children, uh, other Christians. He's imagining us talking to people out there, including people who speak maliciously against us. Apologetics isn't just something for us, it's something that we do out there in the world. Our faith isn't just something that we talk about amongst ourselves. We live our faith, we practice our faith, we speak our faith out there in the world. And that's not just a 1 Peter 3 thing. That's something that is rooted deeply in Scripture and in our identity as the people of God. So I read Psalm 96. And Psalm 96, I hope you heard, was psalm that celebrates the glory and the majesty of our Lord and proclaiming his goodness and his holiness. But when the psalmist imagines where we say that praise and where we proclaim that holiness, he doesn't imagine us proclaiming it in the assembly of the people. Psalm 22 does that. He imagines us proclaiming God's faithfulness out there. Listen. Declare God's glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among the people. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Our praise, our reasons for believing are, are things we also speak in public. And that's rooted in our identity. Genesis 12, such an important scriptural passage, right? That's when Abraham is called. That's when God establishes his people. And Abraham is the seed and it grows into Israel, which flowers into the church through Jesus Christ. And remember what God says to Abraham about this people that he's founding through him. He says, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Our thinking, our reasons, our hope is meant to bless the nations. And if you're living in the world, if you're interacting at all with non-Christians out there, you know that increasingly we are having opportunities or we are being called to give such reasons for the hope that we believe. It happens maybe less in West Michigan, still happens here, but maybe a little less in West Michigan because we live in a fairly Christianized place. But if you leave West Michigan, um, you'll find it happens more regularly. My son is in a graduate science program at the University of Chicago. And uh, he loves it there, it's a great program. And he's found that there are lots of Christian people there, and even there are lots of unbelievers there, but many of them are very respectful of faith, and it, it's, it's been a fine place for him to practice his faith. But he's also found that there are some people who find it perplexing that a, a person who loves science and reason would also be a believer. So one time he was, he was out for, um, I think, lunch with a bunch of people, and they were talking, and it came up that he was a Christian. And, and one of the people there said, was sort of surprised by that and said, you're a Christian? Yeah, he said. Well, what you mean to say, well, you, you mean your parents are a Christian? 
the other person said, and Patrick said, no, no, it's me. And that person was, was rather surprised by that, that, that you could be a person of science and a person of faith. He didn't associate any sort of reasonableness with faith. And that doesn't just happen out there. It, it can happen as close as our own families. Many of us have family members, brothers, sisters, children, who pushed against the faith, who say they no longer believe, and who tell us the reasons they've given up and confront us with those reasons, and sometimes we're not sure what to say to them. With First Peter as our guide, I would like to offer some humble advice both on how we defend our faith to the outside world and what we might say to people who ask us for those reasons that we believe. So, both how we speak to the outside world and what we say to them. How and what. Let's start with a how. Peter is pretty specific about how we should speak to the outside world. He tells us that even if they should speak maliciously against us, even if they should slander us, verse 17, we should give our reasons with gentleness and respect. And that's a theme of his entire letter. If you read the letter of 1 Peter, it is very clear that this is a church who is being marginalized, who is being ridiculed, and over and over again in different ways, Peter says, gentleness and respect and love is your response. People engage you with evil, don't return evil with evil, return evil with blessing, beginning of chapter 3. In chapter 2, it says, live such good lives among the unbelievers that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they should see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. We give our reasons, but we always do it with gentleness and respect. When we, when we engage people who think differently from us, they should always have the sense that we care about them and that we love them and that we seek their flourishing. This is so important, not just for defending faith, but all of our Christian discourse ought to live by this rule. Peter's advice reminds me of what the New Testament calls us when we go out into the world and, and, and proclaim and live the glory of God. The rest of the New Testament says that when we go out there and live our faith, we are witnesses. We are witnessing to Christ. We are witnesses. What we are not is prosecuting attorneys. Sometimes we like to be prosecuting attorneys, especially when people speak maliciously against us and slander us. When people come at us and hit us, we want to, you know, hit them back with the left uppercut of the truth. We want to set them on our heels. We fantasize about someone saying something to us and us coming back with something, you know, so clever and so devastating that, that they're knocked back on their heels and we win a great victory for truth. It's not Peter's way. We're witnesses. We're not prosecuting attorneys. Even to people who are slanderous towards us, we say, I hear what you're saying, but I see things a different way. Gently, humbly, respectfully. But Peter, what if you're gentle and respectful in your response and they just keep slandering? 
What if instead of your, what if your nice, kind response just leads to more abuse and more abuse and you're marginalized in the culture and you feel like you're losing the culture war? What then? Here's Peter's response. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for being good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Don't worry so much about winning. Let Jesus worry about winning. Jesus has already won the victory. We have already won. You don't need to worry so much about winning. You worry about faithfulness. You worry about picking up your cross and following him gently, respectfully, humbly. That's Peter's message. So that's how we witness to the world. Now I'd like to finish with what we might say to those who think differently from us, to our opponents. Now, um, and I'm going to do that with some classic arguments for God. And I should say, these are things that, that, these are arguments that Christians have used for hundreds and hundreds of years to, to say that a belief in God is reasonable. And before I start them, I want to say none of these arguments prove that God exists. I don't believe you can prove intellectually that God exists any more than you can prove that he doesn't exist. We all live by faith. And that's something that, that some reason-loving people out there uh, don't want to say. Some people will say, you know, if you're going to get me to believe in God, you've got to prove that he exists because I'm a person who lives by reason. I'm going to need evidence. And if you can't give me any evidence, I'm not going to believe. Well, it's fine if they say that, but what I want to say to them gently and respectfully is... We all live by faith. When it comes to foundational beliefs, if you question something about what they believe and you keep saying, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And when you drive them all the way down to the bottom, for every belief system, there's a point where the other person will say, I just believe that that's true. That's just what I believe. They believe on faith. Every human being at the bottom, on those foundations, believes by faith. With that understanding... I want to go through a couple or three of these classic arguments. The first is the argument from design. For hundreds of years, people have looked at the way, the beautiful way the world is constructed and said, wow, that construction is so amazing. There must be someone who designed this. There must be a designer. A modern version of that argument is something called the argument for fine-tuning in the universe. In the universe, scientists have found, relatively recent discovery, that there are certain constants, certain laws of physics, constants of physics, that because of the way they are set, govern the way the world works. And some of these constants are the speed of light, the gravitational constant, and the strong and weak nuclear force, okay? Now, you don't have to understand those, how those work, okay? And I don't understand completely how those work. All you need to understand is that those things are set and have always been set at the same level. Think of it as dials on an appliance in your kitchen. Those, each of them have been set at a certain place, and because they're set there, the universe operates the way that they do. Scientists tell us that if even one of those constants changed the tiniest, most microscopic amount, life would not be able to live 
on this earth. Those three constants have been so finely tuned that even the tiniest little twitch and there would be no life on this earth. Scientists have calculated that the chances that all three of those could have been set so precisely at the right levels is one in a billion trillion. Not one in a trillion, one in a billion trillion. It is reasonable to look at those three constants and say, wow, there must be a designer, a God, who put those things in place. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense for God, um, makes the argument this way. He says, it's like this. It's like, imagine there's a firing squad of, of 10 expert marksmen, like top marksmen in the entire military, and 20 feet away from them is a prisoner they're supposed to execute. And they all aim and they all shoot, and every single one of them misses. Now, you could say, well, maybe that's a coincidence, but a mar far more likely interpretation is that they missed on purpose, that something else was afoot, that there's some sort of conspiracy going on here. Now, you should know that secular people, people who don't believe in God, do have their own explanation for the fine-tuning. They, they recognize that this fine-tuning seems to point to God, and so they have an alternative explanation, and you may even have heard of it. It's the multiverse theory. Currently, many physics people believe that there are an infinite number of universes, not just our universe, but there's an infinite number of parallel universes, and this, this has already made its way into pop culture like a, a, a movie like Spider-Man and the, and the oh, I'm forgetting the title, Spider-Man and the Multiverses, or whatever it is. Well, that's an interesting idea. The reason, and, the, and what they say is the reason that we live in a universe where life exists is that we just happen to live in the one where life exists and all the other parallel universes, the dials are set differently and there is no life. Well, that's an interesting theory, but is that something you can prove? Or is that an article of faith? And when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, is it more reasonable to believe that there are an infinite number of universes? Is that more reasonable than believing that there is a single creator who made us? I humbly and respectfully suggest that belief in God is at least as reasonable as, believe, as a belief in an infinite number of parallel universes. Second argument. The argument from beauty the existence of beauty and our response to it, I think, is a great evidence for the existence of God. Why does beauty exist? Why is it that we respond so vigorously to a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful stained glass window or a sunset over Lake Michigan or a mountain scene? Why is it that our heart leaps within us? That question is especially acute if you think that human beings are only made for survival. If evolution only pushed us to survival, what purpose does beauty have? How does beauty help us to survive? As a Christian, I believe that the beauty instinct, our response, is a way to, is the creator awakening our hearts. The creator puts beauty in the universe and makes our hearts leap to remind us that we are made to have fellowship with him. Beauty is like God's signature at the bottom of his canvas. 
Now again, unbelievers recognize this problem. And they've come up for alternative explanations of why we should respond to beauty and why it would have something to do with survival. For instance, I once read an article that said the reason that we respond to a beautiful vista, we like big landscapes like mountainscapes, the reason we respond to those is because when you're in a wide open, when you have a big wide open view, it's easier to find prey and it's easier to spot predators. Okay? So we can find food and keep ourselves safe from predators that might come to get us. And that's why we feel contentment when we see a big, beautiful landscape. In Making Sense of God, Tim Keller says this, a common scientific explanation of the human desire for beauty is that our ancestors came to recognize certain landscapes as beautiful because it alerted them to the prospect of food. Okay, that's respectfully, that, that's, a good exp- that's an interesting explanation. But is that something you can prove? Or is that an article of faith? I think it's an article of faith. And I have a couple of just honest questions for that article. When I stand in front of a big landscape and, 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 and respond that it's beautiful, I, I don't feel hungry. It's not a food response. When I think a beautiful vista is beautiful, it's, it's my soul leaping up within me towards God. And I don't just think that food-rich environments are beautiful. I can stand in the desert southwest and look at the Grand Canyon where there's very little food, and I find that beautiful too. So I respect this alternate explanation, but I humbly say, I humbly present, I humbly submit that I like my explanation better. One last example. This is something I I started to get into in a previous sermon. I'm going to get into it just a little more deeply here. And that is, another old argument is that God exists as the moral argument. The fact that we are moral people who make distinctions between good and evil shows that there is a God who created good and evil. If you've ever read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, you'll know that that's how he starts that book. That's his basis for arguing for the existence of God. And one aspect of the moral argument is the existence of human rights. All people, um, both believers and non-believers, want to hold on to human rights. We want to say that a human being is worthy of dignity, that you shouldn't torture a human being, that you shouldn't enslave a human being. We all want to say that, and that's great that we have that common belief. Christians say and ground that belief in the existence of God and the fact that God made us in his image. Human beings deserve dignity because they are made in the image of God. God loves them. We should treat them well. Unbelievers also want to have human rights, but they have more trouble finding ground. Alan Dershowitz used to teach law at Harvard. Sometimes he's on TV. He's not a believer. He once wrote an essay called, Where Do Human Rights Come From? And in that essay, he tried to figure out, well, what are the grounds for believing in human rights and their universality if I'm not a believer? And he said, you know, historically, there are three reasons people give for human rights, three grounds. He said, first, some people say there's human rights because God created them. That's our belief. 
And as an unbeliever, Dershowitz doesn't want that one, so he pushes that one to the side. The second reason people believe in human rights, says Dershowitz, is they think that it is a cultural construction, a social construction. So as human beings develop societies, they came up with this idea of human rights because they realized it would make for better societies. If we all agreed that there was such a thing as human rights, if we made that up, we would live together more civilly. Dershowitz doesn't like that explanation either because then human rights really aren't universal. They don't apply to everyone. So maybe Westerners, in Western societies, we invented this idea of human rights, but maybe there are other societies that live a different way. And so if we say to, say, China, where they used to force women to have abortions, if we say to China, you're violating those women's human rights, they can say back to us, that's your way of doing society. Human rights is your invention. We've ordered our society in a different way. Don't tell us what to do. So Dershowitz doesn't like that explanation either. And so what he ends up saying is, human rights are universal. They apply to everyone. And we don't know why. We all know that they're universal. We know that they apply to everyone. But we don't have any explanation for that. I'm so glad, respectfully, that we share those same beliefs, Alan. We can work together for common cause, for good laws, for treating people well. But is your belief something based on reason or something based on faith? It's faith. And with gentleness and respect, let me say that I too have faith in human rights, but I would like to push my faith and yours one step deeper. That the reason that we believe that all human beings have dignity is because we have a God who believes in justice and who believes in righteousness and who believes in right and who believes in wrong. A God who responds when he sees the downcast trodden upon. A God who cannot stand when the powerful enslave or oppress the weak and who reacts to that. So it's not just that there's these things called human rights that we know that they exist. Underneath those rights, there's something bigger, something deeper. It's love. It's the love of the God who made the universe. We don't have to be intellectually ashamed of our beliefs. We can stand in any place of learning or any place of power and hold our head up and give reasons, joyful reasons, respectful reasons, gentle reasons for the hope of our belief. And we can say to those to whom we're talking, this hope grounds my life. It keeps me going from day to day. I lean on it every morning, and I wonder if you'd like to lean on that hope too. Amen. Lord, I thank you for all the ways when we open our eyes and use our minds, when we love you with our minds, that you show us your face, that you show us that there are reasons to believe, there are reasons for the hope that we have within us. Lord, you know that we deal with uncertainty. You know that we deal with opposition sometimes. Help us to be people who stand in your world with gentleness and respect and kindness and with your love in our heart. 
are able to publicly glorify you. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.